0: It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blends All, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. It is Sunday and it's time. This is industry seating. I am Jason Thomas, your host, and we have a lot to talk about. Strangely, because it seems like nothing is going on in the the Moto world right now, but that's okay. There's there are things that are happening, just maybe not you know publicly, and and things are not decided. But definitely want to get into kind of the state of affairs for our sport, and uh, we'll answer some emails. I'm giving away that Formula Helmet today. All of you have sent so many emails in with questions, which is great. I will answer some of those today. I have already chosen the winner, which is cool too. Definitely want to get into a few more stories today. Kind of trying to think about where I wanted to go next. And uh, there's so many racing stories and situations I've been in over my career that I, I forget about some and I have to reminisce and go through year by year and off seasons and traveling around the world, trying to think about stuff because a lot of it just, you know, I've laughed about the story so many times with people that I don't think they're all that entertaining because uh, I lived it for one and then I've just rehashed them so many times, but they're just comedy. So we'll get into one really good one today and uh, I'll preview another one for uh, for next week. but. Wanted to just kind of start off the podcast, just letting you know what I've heard, what's going on with the sport, things that have developed this week. Anyway, um, most of you know that the Feld Group got out in front of this thing last Monday and basically had a big, you know, press tour. They were on seemingly every uh, media outlet in the sport, you know, from Racer X to X to Motocross Action uh, swap moto live, literally everywhere that they could to try to reach their customer base and the fans of the sport. Uh, because you know, sometimes people get locked into one, uh, news outlet and and they want to make sure that they reach them. However, you may be digesting information. Unfortunately, uh, industry seating is not on that list yet, but yeah, I mean, we're a recorded podcast and, this being a part of a part of X and myself uh, doing work with Racerx, yeah, I knew that those bases were covered. So I was uh, very happy that those guys were available uh, on all those different platforms because I think that's been criticism in the past is that they don't communicate enough and they don't share information and they're not transparent enough. So that was that was good. I know this is a really challenging time for for Feld in general. You know, they wait off a massive amount of workers until they can get their series and their shows in mass back under control. You know, that whether it's Disney on ice or Monster Jam or the Jurassic World stuff they do, Supercross obviously, all that stuff is on hold. So yeah, it sucked. Um, but I, I would assume that, you know, they're in business to entertain people. So as soon as they are able to get back up and running, I, I have a very strong feeling that that will be the case and all those people will come running back and, and they'll have better shows than ever. Uh, that's one lesson I've kind of learned in this is that we're all learning that the things that we took for granted, just being able to go watch a movie or just being able to go have dinner after work or go meet up with your friends, period, anywhere, right? You, you kind of can't do any of that stuff anymore. This has been the most upending event of my lifetime, anyway, you know, and we'll see what the long-term effects of it are. And sure, we've had 9/11 and you know wars all over the place and, and all that stuff. But as far as your day-to-day life being interrupted, this gets my vote. Uh, is people can't even get near each other, right? You you can't literally. The government is shutting down the economy systematically on purpose. Uh, that's never happened before. Uh, 9/11 shut things down. Uh, as a byproduct of that terrorist event, but it wasn't on purpose. You know, the the government right now is literally telling people, don't go to work, you know, don't go around people, don't fly, don't leave your house even. So it's, it's a very different dynamic that we're all faced with and how we all rebound from this will be interesting and it'll be very uh, unique for each, each business, each person, each household. But I really do believe that America specifically is uh, very resilient. I think all of us have taken this as a challenge. And once we are able to get back to some sense of normalcy, whenever that is, you know, I don't have a timeline. I think America will come roaring back because I just think that's who we are as as a country. And I think that's in our fiber as people to, you know, not let this virus win, you know, And, and it's obviously very challenging for a lot of people. I have friends that are furloughed right now. And obviously everyone does, you know, I have friends that are sick and every aspect of this, this virus, um, you know, has touched my life in one way or another. So, uh, I don't think that we are going to be down for long. And I do think that once we get a grip on this thing, that America and in the world, I think, you know, as well, will want to prove that this, this isn't too much to, to overcome. So that's all going to be played out in the next few months, I think, but I'm, I'm still optimistic, even as bad as things are right now. And it's probably going to get worse. You know, if you listen to uh, what the president says and and Dr. Fauci and all these people say, you know, this week that we're about to go into might be the worst week. We might reach peaks in a lot of areas and, and more deaths than we've seen. And it's going to look dark. It's going to look bad. Every, every day we wake up, for the next little bit, it's going to be worse news than the day before. And I'm prepared for it. I'm still optimistic. And I, I think it's very, uh, a positive message, let's say for those, I don't want to say positive message, but I, I think it's the smart move to get out in front of it and say, Hey, it's going to be very bad for the next little bit because it allows people to prepare for it. It will not be such a negative tone if we know it's coming. Right. And, and I think, that some things were mishandled along the way, right? We, maybe we could have been out in front of it more, but I don't, I don't think that anybody knew just how bad this was going to get. You know, this this was a virus in the same family that we faced with other things, whether it was bird flu, swine flu, SARS, MERS, any of that. We faced similar things, but not to this level, not to this widespread pandemic scope. So I don't I don't place all that much blame on, Governments for, for not being more forthcoming, because I don't think you could ever predict it going to this level. Uh, it's been a 100 years since we've seen anything that has been this widespread. So uh, a lot of you know these government bodies' job, in my opinion, is to be truthful, but not to spread fear either. Because that does, in a lot of cases, it does a lot of unnecessary harm. This case is obviously not a, a good... Case study for that. Obviously, this this one is much worse than anybody seemed to predict, and you can you can pick any country you'd like, and I think they still underestimated where this was going to go. But I do think, uh, in closing, I, I do think we will roar back. That that's my prediction. Uh, whether it's the summer, or whether it's the fall, once we're able to, I think this has really uh, put a charge on some people you know, when we can go back to business, I think people are going to be more, more motivated than ever to write the ship and get back to normal life. Uh, so I don't know that that the human race has ever been united against a virus before or united against a disease like it, like it is on this. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes, but, um, I do want to commend Feld for, for jumping out and, and giving voice to their position on a lot of this stuff because it, it could have been easy for them to just sit back and, and wait, and not really put out information and see how this all goes. But I've always been of the view that transparency is better, even if you don't have the answers, which I don't think they do. And I think they were very honest with that coming out and telling people that they're, they're working diligently on answers and trying to make the best plans they can. And really I just don't think there's anything to be gained by silence. Now as for what I think happens, that's an interesting question and we're learning more every day. You know, mainstream sports got together with the president on Saturday, and uh, it sounds like they're hoping for, you know, sometime in August or September to start up. Obviously, that lines up for football season, and, and that's seemingly what grabbed all the headlines was that they felt like football may be able to start on on time. But everybody was involved in the call, I guess, except for our sport. But, you know, from NASCAR to UFC to football, basketball, baseball, everybody was on the call just trying to get answers. And I think they were all kind of guessing on timelines so then they could go make their own plans ideally. I guess that's good news for our sport, you know, the August, September. But is it really, right? That's the question because if you look at a schedule right now, you know, MX Sports is hoping to launch Lucas Oil Promoter Cross in June. That seems early according to the news, right? You know, I think when that schedule first came out, we were like, well, that's 3 months away. That's a pretty good timeline. But every day I wake up and I feel like it's earlier and earlier and we're not getting closer. So I think April is going to be a really pivotal month. You know, do we do we get to the peak and start to flatten the curve in April? And what does it look like by May 1st? You know, because I think they're going to have to make some definitive decisions in May. That's common sense, probably. But April is going to be pivotal to get this thing turned around and going the other direction so they can make optimistic and uh, hopeful timelines for June. So we're going to have to see. But I guess my wonder is if they have to push that back, if it's more realistic to be late summer, you know, July, August, and that's even sounds early, but if let's say it's August, right. And August is the first time that mainstream sports are allowed to compete. And maybe that governmentally applies to motocross. I don't know. I'm I'm guessing here, but in that scenario who flexes, because it sounds to me from all accounts that Supercross is planning on going racing in September. I've heard it many, many times, and I got that overall feeling publicly from Feld as well. So if MX Sports pushes their events back because they're forced to, how does that go? Does does the motocross series reduce their number of events? Does Supercross, you know, they're, they're going to have to have meetings and they're going to have to get in the room with the OEMs and all the teams and make a plan. I don't know how that goes. It doesn't sound like that would be a very pleasant meeting because what's going to happen is all these events are going to get crammed into available dates. Now, from the outside, you could just say, okay, great. Well, you know, we'll just race into November and December. Well, I don't think the teams are going to go for that at all. I think the teams are going to try to enforce a, a go-no-go date of like October 31st is like that's the end. Whatever racing we're doing for the 2020 season has to be done by then. I don't think Feld would really be excited about that news, but I think that's what they would push back on because they're, listen, they're already going two months past their, you know, normal schedule to be racing late October. There has to be some amount of time for these teams to sign new riders, get new bikes, do all that stuff. And, and I, I, I have argued vehemently with a few people because they're saying that you need, you know, three months plus to do all that. Yeah, okay. That that's ideal, sure. But I still think if you started November 1st, you're fine. You get a new bike, you get a new team, you go testing, you go riding. Listen, eight weeks is is enough time. You can get it done. It's not gonna be perfect. I get it, right? You're you're in your boot camp and you're trying to test and and do all the stuff at the same time. But listen, nothing's going to be ideal. We're all going to have to compromise. We're all going to have to adjust. The real question is, how far can we push that narrative? Can you push into November? Does that become December 1st? Because then it gets really dicey, and I I start to side with the teams a little bit more on on that end Is there isn't enough time at that point to be ready to go racing again in January. So if these races get pushed back, who gives, where, you know, where does the compromise come in? Does, you know, Davey Coombs and Kerry Coombs and and their DMX sports group, do they start cutting dates to accommodate for Supercross? It sounds like Supercross needs to get seven rounds in no matter what. So the further that gets pushed back, the more likely we're going to see, you know, two races a week type stuff to get those seven in. And I guess theoretically you could get you know, seven rounds in, in a month, I guess that's possible. Uh, If you look at what's, what's on their possible list of doing, right. I've heard racing on Friday night and then racing on Monday night. I've heard racing on Wednesday night. So I don't think, and, and out of their own mouths, nothing is off the table really at this point within reason, you know, multiple races per week sounds like it could happen, right. You get all the teams and riders in one spot, And you knock out two races in that one city. You have one load in for all the dirt and all the equipment, all the expenses to get everybody there. And you get that race done. You go to the next city, you get two more in. And now you've gotten four out of seven rounds done in two two weeks, basically less than that, two weekends. That's where I see this kind of going. On the outdoor side, on Lucas Oil Pro Motocross side, I don't know because that's such a more difficult deal. Outdoor events are much harder on everybody. On the bikes, on the riders, um, it's just a much more difficult scenario because riders have to recover. The bikes have to be completely rebuilt. The bikes just get hammered on an outdoor national. So I don't know. That's going to be a really challenging dynamic to watch is how the dates affect the relationships and who's willing to work together, how the OEMs and the teams respond to that news and how hard do they push back. I wouldn't want to be having to make decisions in there because I don't think that anything is going to be ideal. I just don't think there's going to be a situation where everybody's like, yeah, this is, this is really good. No problem. Let's, we can knock this out. I think everyone's going to have to make hard decisions and compromise and work with each other. And if that fails, if it really gets ugly and people are like, okay, well, we can't agree to anything. We're just going to have to, you know, set dates and see who goes where that's going to be a really bad deal. I hope that doesn't go that way. I don't think that in the best interest of the sport, it'll get to that point, but I'm not willing to rule anything out with the amount of money on the line for all of these series and teams and everybody involved. Uh, I'm just hoping it stays more cordial than it could possibly go if this virus doesn't uh, get under control or stop spreading and that summer, those summer dates turn into fall dates and everybody's jumbled into one calendar. Good luck. Uh, I don't know where we go from there. So we'll see. Uh, but that's just kind of how every day as, it, as we push further and further back, the more likely of that scenario of where we have to start cutting dates and compromising becomes uh, not necessarily on the horizon, but something that's going to have to become real conversation. So before we get too far, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, uh, Pirelli. Uh, if you're if you're out there riding, which some of you are, right? If you're trail riding, please be careful, right? We don't need to to add any more people to the strain on the medical system, but there are a lot of people out there riding. So put some Pirellis on your bike. I promise you, you'll be happy with it. Uh, Pirelli is one of the market leaders and they do a great job, whether a street or off-road. Uh, as I've said many times in this podcast, I was blown away with the developments they had made in the the interim. I went uh, away from Pirelli for a while, just, you know, team decisions. And then we came back and their outdoor product, which is going to be relevant for most of you guys, just their motocross and off-road product is, in my opinion, as good or better than anything else out there, period. And I'm trying to be a little politically correct because I have a lot of relationships in the industry but I do not think you can possibly be unhappy with a Pirelli product on your bike. So I'll say that. I want to thank blends all oils as well. Uh, David has stuck behind me on, in these tough times and, and they're basically the same way that, you know, brand I work for fly racing is doing right. Let's, let's get creative. Let's find ways to one, ease the burden on consumers and dealers. And then two, let's get aggressive so we can, we can be better on the other side of this, right? And there are only so many things you can control, but bettering yourself, bettering your customer uh, best customer response, and, and their opinion of your product, improving your product, improving your, your business relationships, all those are things that you can do at a difficult time. And I applaud those guys. And, and one of the promos they're doing for this month, if you buy a case of oil in the month of April, Use the promo code free tea, Just no spaces. Just free with the t at the end, and you will get a free t-shirt with any case of oil you buy on blendsall.com. So pretty cool deal there. They got all their merchandise in, and and my merchandise is on the way, which I'm excited about. Want to thank Works Connection. Uh, they have on their website a, a little memo to everyone, as many companies are doing. Just basically saying they're still open, they're still shipping orders, they're still taking orders. A lot of people, as I mentioned, are out riding, and you can get your bike dialed in. I've seen a ton of posts on Instagram just from normal, everyday consumers of riding, and this is giving them time to work on their bikes, right? They're giving them time when they're not at work all day. You know, they can go work on it on their lunch hour or after work or whatever, but they're getting their bikes so dialed in, which is pretty cool. Uh, it just, you have to find new opportunities and not get bogged down in all the, the difficulties that this is creating, use the positives that come from it too. So Works Connection can get totally get you dialed in. Uh, one thing I, I didn't know that they were offering was gift cards too. So if you want to do something nice for your buddy that, that's going riding, but you don't know, you know, I think this is really cool for uh, wives and girlfriends too, is get your significant other a gift card to, uh, to fix their bike up. It's a really cool idea. I've seen it in other business models where you know if you can't go to restaurants right now or you can't go to your favorite uh, bar or whatever, buy a gift card for somebody because that's direct uh, you know stimulus to that small business, and you're going to use it eventually, right? It's it's all going to get redeemed, and but for that business to create cash flow right now is is everything for all these businesses every. Every small business out there, even medium-sized businesses, cash flow is the number one thing on their minds is just continuing their business. So uh, Clutch Purchase, Clutch Levers, they have you know just a complete catalog of replacement parts on the Works Connection website, so go check that out. Plum Creek Funding, Zach Morris and I have talked more in the last month or two than ever about just everything that's going on because right now with the way... The rates are going and the and the government programs are come are coming out. All of the mortgage programs are literally changing daily and they're adapting to the environment because some companies are really struggling. Uh, the government stimuluses are are helping some of that, but they're also affecting all of the rates too. So if you want to find out how this may directly affect you or create op- an opportunity for you, uh, call or text Zach 720-212-212. 4685 again that's 720 212 4685 I think the most likely help would be to do a refi because the rates are in the 3s th- for a lot of people but for me I'm kind of wanting to see where this housing market goes and it may be an opportunity to to buy a house and I'm I'm kind of just following along to see if prices go down you know as the mortgage rates stay down that may create a new opportunity for me, even if it's just a rental property, right? It's trying again. And and there's a common theme in these podcasts is I'm really trying to find opportunities in a very difficult situation because what else can we do, right? I don't want to just sit here and be bummed out and be sad and, and, you know, Oh, woe is me. There's plenty of that going around. And, and yeah, it's, it's definitely, there are times when I'm bummed out about the way, Everything is going in the world economy, but at the same time, I'm also going to try to make the most of it. And if there's a chance to to get a new house at a price that I previously couldn't afford, at a rate that was never available, that, that's a great opportunity, right? So find the silver linings in all of these negative situations, right? What what else can we possibly do? Uh, I want to thank Premier Vapor Blasting. They are located in Georgia, and I was on their Instagram this morning. And they had just finished up some parts for a guy. And seriously, every time I go on there, I'm blown away at the next project they've come out with. I was completely new to this whole vapor blasting industry, but the things that they can restore and they take parts that are just hammered, you know, on a lot of vintage bikes or just old two strokes that people are riding and they make it look brand new. So, you can get a 25% off discount if you mention, mention industry seating podcast with those guys, which is a pretty great deal. Thank you, uh, Brandon for offering that, but I would I would encourage you if you don't know much about this, go on their Instagram. It's premier vapor blasting and the pictures do justice for itself. You won't need any more explanation after that. They just basically take stuff that's just beat up and hammered and make it look brand new again. So a really cool innovation that I didn't know much about until the last few months, but, uh, I'm on board. I think it's a pretty awesome deal. Last sponsorship is fly racing and a little bit of info here. So first, uh, everything on the 2020 fly racing, uh, and you know, website catalog, all the products we offer for 2020 is 10% off and dealers don't have to honor that, that, but normally we don't allow any discounting on current products. That's where this all stems from. But if you go out there, you go online, you go to your local dealer, we are allowing advertisement for 10% off. So that's going to give you a little bit of a a relief there on pricing. And even cooler, in my opinion, is we're doing this Instagram giveaway, which I'm trying to manage with a couple other people. And I'm going to be touching this probably the most, but this is how it works. So if you go to your local dealer or curbside service at a dealer, or even online and you buy fly racing product, and if if it's a helmet, it's a set of gear or it's a a pair of boots. Those are the three qualifying offers. If you buy any of those things, you get a free product sent directly from us to you. Now, how you qualify is, like I said, you buy a helmet and it's either a formula helmet, an F2 helmet or a kinetic helmet. And those are our three current helmets right now. If you buy any of those three, you take a picture with the product and that obviously the set of gear and the, the set of boots Obviously, qualify to take a picture of the product, post it on your Instagram, and tag at Fly Racing USA. Right, so that's going to notify us that you posted a picture. Second to that, you need to take a picture of the receipt and direct message it to at Fly Racing USA, and it's probably going to be me that sees that receipt. What's going to happen there is I'm going to reach back out to you. I'm going to verify that you posted a picture. I'm going to verify your receipt, and then I'm going to reach out and say, okay, you know first, congrats. Thank you for doing this. Now, please choose your item, send me your address, and we'll get it taken care of. So there are a few steps to do it, but in my opinion, this is the most uh, aggressive and uh, helpful program there is out there. Really for us, for Fly Racing, all we're trying to do is help dealers. We're trying to help create a sale for the dealer and and help customers get something for free for buying something, right? We're, we're trying to help this business the best way we know how, and yeah, it's going to certainly cost fly racing some money to do this, right? And, and that's just a part of it, but we feel the most important thing we can do right now is offer customers something that they normally wouldn't get and then help dealers sell the products that are in their stores and on their websites. So that's the deal. That's the information. We should be rolling out our Instagram posts on that today. Uh, I was with, working with the marketing team late last night on finalizing that. So details should be out on that today. I hope that will explain it a little bit more. But again, it's super simple. Post a picture of you with your new product. And if you order online, when it actually arrives, then direct message your receipt information to at USA, and then we'll follow up with you and get you your product directly to you. All right. So enough on the sponsors. Thank you to all of them. Uh, they are what keeps me going in this podcast game and, uh, their support can't be overstated. So we're going to do two, two more things in this podcast. First, we're going to do a little story time and then we're going to get into emails after that. So the story I picked out for today was a trip and I've talked about this trip a little bit on Pulp MX, uh, but not into this level of detail. So, I went to uh, Guatemala at the end of the 2001 season. And it all, you know, this was not a planned trip for me. This really came together at the last minute and was certainly one of the wildest trips I've ever been on. And it would have been December of 01. And uh, my mom was actually in the hospital um, getting open heart surgery. So, it was a chaotic time and I was trying to decide if I should go or not go. And, um, yeah, it was just a really difficult deal. So, um, how it all went down is Ryan Clark was supposed to go from how I remember it. He had been down there before and something came up where he couldn't go. And I remember Paul Lindsay who worked with, he, he had raced down there a ton, but he was kind of aging out of that deal. And, and I think he was transitioning into his team manager role so he called me out of the blue and said, Hey, this is the deal. Uh, can you go race, you know, Guatemala Supercross? It's going to be this weekend. It's in Guatemala City. And I believe he called me on a, a Tuesday or a Wednesday. And the race was that weekend, but they wanted me on a flight that day. Right. So I, I feel like he called me around 10 in the morning, which would have been pretty early where he's at, you know, in California. He would, uh, I think he was in maybe New Mexico, maybe California, but either way it would have been early. Right. So he calls me and says, Hey, this flight, if, if you do it, we're going to get you on a flight later today out of Orlando. And I'm like, okay, why well, I, I can't tell you. Yes. I need, I need a few minutes to decide here. I, I literally, I'm just hanging out of my house about, I'm getting ready to go practice that day. And, uh, so I'm like, you know what, screw it. Let's do this. I want to, I want to go race. Let's go. So he's like, all right, I'm, I'm on it. I'm going to get you a flight. I'll call you back in an hour or two with the flight information, but you need to be packing and getting ready to roll like right now. So I do, I am throwing my race, you know, my race level gear, like new stuff and washing boots and helmet and just getting everything ready to go racing. And, And all that stuff for me was like making sure you have tear offs and making sure all your stuff's clean and go through your checklist of everything you need to go racing and your energy drink mix, I guess not energy drink, but um, hydration mix stuff and all the things that you need for a race weekend that I was nowhere near prepared for because this is early December. Uh, I wasn't even thinking about going to a race that weekend. So I get, I get ready to go, uh, get my flight information and I haul butt to Orlando to jump on a a direct flight from, I think it was direct, uh, from Orlando to Guatemala city. Uh, I believe I was on gosh airline back then it would have been one of the South American airlines, I think, um, trying to, I don't know, escaping me right now, but I remember flying into Guatemala city and not really knowing what to expect. i had never been to Central America before. And I, I come out of the airport and it's, it's what you would imagine. I mean, there were chickens walking down the sidewalk outside of the airport. Uh, it was interesting to say the least. So the gentleman that was putting on, you know, or organizing on my side was a guy named Fritz Klimowitz and he was the Yamaha importer for Guatemala. So he was really good friends with Paul Lindsay and Ryan Clark and they all kind of vouched for him. So I went, you know, I I knew Paul had been there a bunch to, to race there. So I, I took, you know, Paul at his word and, and I knew he wouldn't put me into a really a bad spot as far as going to a race. You certainly wouldn't recommend something because he had traveled all over all over the world and uh, we had kind of a kindred spirit that way. So I went, Fritz is there, uh, all good. I appreciate that. And and you have to remember this is in a time where cell phones were scarce. They were kind of coming out like we had the flip phones, but trying to get international service was you yeah, yeah, right. Cell phones didn't work that way. And I didn't really have a way to contact him. So I was hundred percent trusting that Fritz was going to meet me at the airport and know what I looked like. And we were going to be able to find each other without any real communication. So thankfully that all went to plan. Uh, he takes me to the hotel. It's pretty late. Um, get to bed really nice hotel, by the way, it was, uh, I, that was one of the concerns I had is like, where the hell am I going to stay? Like I'm in Guatemala. I don't know anything about Guatemala. And, uh, but my hotel was super, super nice above this mall. Uh, so that was all sweet. Um, he picks me up the next morning and he's like, Hey, let's go to my shop, which was the Yamaha distribution center basically for Guatemala. And it, and it wasn't anything extravagant, right? It looked like a small dealership. Uh, and he had like a warehouse that kept bikes in it, but it wasn't anything over the top by any means. And yeah, I mean, I guess it's what you would expect for, for Guatemala. But uh, he has a brand new YZ250 for me. So that was a bit relieved. I, I was relieved to see that because you're always wondering what equipment you're going to get at a race like this. And then my 250F was not brand new, but it, it was in pretty good shape. Uh, nothing that scared me away from it anyway. So the plan was we were going to go riding that day, which was cool. I was pumped on that because keep in mind, I raced Hondas. <laughs> uh, well, I shouldn't say I raced Hondas. I was coming out of my Husqvarna contract. Sebastian Tortelli had let me ride his 01 Honda practice bike. It was just bone stock. It wasn't even his practice bike. It was just like a backup bike. It was bone stock. So I've been riding that, but I knew that I was going to race Yamahas in the 0 02 season. So that was even better as I was going to get a leg up on riding the, the Yamahas that I had not received yet. So we were going to go riding that day and get the bikes all sorted out um, and just get me used to a Yamaha. Cause again, I had not ridden one at all. So it was a completely new motorcycle to me that I was going to have to race in a couple of days. So we go to the middle of nowhere to this guy named, uh, Tony Madrano's track. And I knew Tony a little bit because he raced amateur class for, for, uh, fast five, Ferracci DKNY Husqvarna team that I raced for. So I had a little bit of interaction with him. But I didn't know him well, you know. But when they said, "Okay, we're going to go to his ranch," where his track is, like, "Oh, okay, cool. I I know of that and know of him a little bit." So we go, and Tony wasn't in Guatemala yet. He was flying back in, so he wasn't out there riding with me. But I got to ride and take my time and work through the bike and get sorted. Um, so that was cool. I had a not a full day, but I had a day where I could take my time and and work through getting used to a brand new motorcycle. Track was pretty cool. Obviously it wasn't watered or anything, you know, but it was something where no one else was out there riding. There was no pressure to try to go fast or anything. And I could break in the the new YZ250 and then try to get used to the 250F. The weird thing about the 250F was that it had this like nasty bog in it and I couldn't figure it out. And the only, the only way really to avoid it was to keep the RPMs high. And if you really let it go all the way down and try to like accelerate off the very bottom end, it, it would bog. And that was not awesome. I remember calling Tim Ferry and basically uh, asking like, what's the deal with this? Is there anything I can do? And at the time, I didn't even know Chad Reed yet, but Chad Reed had been living with Tim Ferry and he was riding that. To 250 uh, VDF as well, and he asked Chad, and Chad just started laughing. I guess because there was no way to get it <laughs> taken out. I they were still working on it. I could hear Chad laughing in the background because I brought it up and like, how do I fix it? So, um, yeah, that was an interesting day, and the two VDF honestly just scared me because I didn't. We didn't really have a good mechanic. There was no one who knew really what they were doing, and there was you know trying to jet it. I was scared of making it worse, so. I knew if I just kept the thing revved to the moon, it would, it would hold up. And so, yeah, that was the plan. Leaving that day was just rev the piss out of the 250F and then the the YZ250 was good to go. So what I remember the most about the trip to that ranch in the middle of nowhere was, man, you're driving. And I, it was the most, you know, war torn area I've ever seen in my life now. You got to remember that Guatemala was in a civil war until 1996. So I'm 5 years past that, right? But nothing's really changed. So you see just buildings shot out and you see the poorest people you've ever seen in your life, right? People are living along the river and you see their clothes all just scattered everywhere along the river and and the the river is their shower, it's their bathroom, it's their laundry. Um, yeah, I'm sure it's their water source for drinking water too. I, it's the worst possible living conditions I'd ever seen. I, I just was never exposed to anything like that in my life. And I remember just staring and asking, uh, Fritz, like what it, like, what the hell is going on here? And, and he was used to it, right? He grew up there and it was just another day, but I'll never forget how I, I'd never seen poverty on that level before. And it was really sobering to know that that was just people's everyday life. You know, the police force was basically a heavy machine gun. I want to say it was a 50 Cal or something similar bolted into the bed of a, a truck, like a flatbed and a, a, I don't even know if it was a police officer or military sitting in a lawn chair with, you know, basically steering this gun around as they drove around town. And I would assume they had the, the lawn chair bolted down, but that's literally what it was. like. So picture that, a truck with policia written on the door, a high-powered machine gun bolted into the the bed of the truck, and this dude sitting in a, a, seriously, a lawn chair bolted to the bed of the truck, and this dude just cruising around town, ready, you know, looking for trouble. Just not anything you'd think you'd ever see. I mean, maybe if you look at, like, stuff in... Lebanon or Syria or something, that's what you'd expect. But I didn't expect to roll into that, uh, in, you know, going to a supercross race. So I just left that whole weekend. I guess I was still in the middle of it, but I just remember thinking this isn't a, this is not a safe place. Like I, I don't know what I really expected, but it wasn't this. So I really had to kind of take a step back and like, okay, I'm going to have to be very careful in everything I do. And, I went into it thinking, man, Guatemala, Central America this is going to be awesome to the middle of the trip. And we hadn't even gone to the race yet. This was still just going out and test the bikes. I was already like, man, I don't, I don't know what I've gotten myself into here. Uh, I, I started getting a little bit more scared than excited. So I just remember that kind of feeling rolling over me as the enthusiasm was going away and, and just a level of uncertainty and not fear because nothing in a, Threatened me or an endangered me, but it just wasn't uneasy kind of feel where you know we're not in Kansas anymore and and normal rules may not apply here. So anyway, uh, go into the race. Uh, went to the track on Friday, checked it out, and I remember the one of the first people I saw was Ernesto Fonseca's dad, and he was the track builder. So that honestly was a really re- relieving feeling for me because it was some sort of normalcy, and I knew the track was going to be pretty good because. Mr. Fonseca had been around a lot, right? His son was Ernesto Fonseca, Supercross champion. So he knew how to build a racetrack, what was expected. Uh, it wasn't going to be unrealistic jumps or any of that. And, and that's what we got. We got a really good racetrack. And uh, I was very thankful for some sort of normalcy in that whole situation. There were a couple of other American riders there. Um, I want to say Danny Carlson and Doug Parsons were both there. Uh, I think that's who was there. Um, but that was cool. I, I didn't know them at all. So I didn't get, I didn't really hang out with them a lot, but just having other Americans was definitely a little bit reassuring too. I could ask them questions, you know, in, in normal American English and get, get easy answers, right. They could help me find water or do whatever without the language barrier, uh, that I was facing with a lot of people. Um, but the race overall, I thought the race went off kind of without a hitch for the most part. Uh, the 250F, uh, Tony Madrano won. I got second. But to be honest, I was so scared of that bike, uh, I wasn't trying all that hard. And that's easy to say. Oh yeah, make excuses. But that's fine. I, I'm completely okay with Madrano winning and me getting second. I was not about to crash on that 250F trying to win the race. Uh, I was just kind of cruising around doing the jumps and go fast through the turns and just make sure I didn't have some huge endo on, you know, supercross rhythm sections and stuff. So, um I knew that the premier race was the the big bike anyway, the 250 two stroke and and that's what I rode all the time, that bike and that's what I raced. So, and I really knew that that's why they had brought me there was to win that premier class race. It's no different than American Supercross. The big bike is where the money is and where the emphasis is. So, rode the I guess the 125 class back then got second, but I knew once we got on the big bike it was go time. And it it just played out that way. I got the whole shot and kind of checked out. Really wasn't that difficult of a main event. Uh I figured that uh Doug Parsons and Carlson would be okay because they were pretty decent supercross riders in their own right, but I never really saw them. So I don't know if they got a bad start or what. And uh I just had so much experience at that point. Uh it just wasn't all that Difficult of a main event to win. And that doesn't sound very humble. I get it. But keep in mind, I've been racing all over the world and Germany and Greece and all these countries. So uh, a race like that was kind of right up my alley. And I just really knew what to do. And I'd put in so much work with Sebastian Tortelli before that 2002 supercross season, which we were uh, uh, approaching, that I was ready to go win. Uh, I, I, kinda of dominated that two fifty main event and I was not I wasn't pissed off after the the smaller bike main event, but I was frustrated that I couldn't ride the way I wanted to because the bike was so sketchy. So I wanted to prove a point on the two fifty two stroke and I, I think I did that. So all good there. Um definitely was pumped and spraying champagne and all that stuff. So this is where it kind of starts to go sideways the rest of the trip. I get back to the pits and everybody's pumped and Fritz is happy. And, you know, obviously when you win, everybody's, everybody wants a piece of you and talking and celebrating. And I, I was really happy as well. well. I get back and yeah, great. My wallet and my digital camera were both stolen. So that's super awesome. Uh, I would say it's partly my fault too. I should have done a better job of protecting my stuff. I probably should have given it to, to Fritz to hold on to, but I, I don't know. I just young and stupid, right? I was, uh, I guess I would've been 21, 21, 22 and just didn't know any better. And yeah, somebody went in my bag and stole it. And so now I had no wallet or camera, but I did have a a nice trophy and, um, yeah, champagne bottle and I was going to get paid. So all was not lost, but it just sucked. I didn't have my, you know, everything stolen, right? I didn't really have any cash in there. I don't think, but, you know, credit cards and driver's license and everything is just gone. Luckily, my passport I left at the uh, the hotel, which I always separate those two when I travel. I never have my ID with my passport just so I have some sort of identification if one gets stolen. But still, uh, somebody went and racked up a bunch of charges at a local bar that night. And so I had to deal with all that with the credit card companies. And, yeah, good times, right? Just hate that I'm sure people are desperate too. So you don't want to blame anybody, but thieves are, thieves are, they have a special place in hell for them. So pretty crappy deal. So the next step of that, you know, we we don't really, didn't really go out and celebrate or anything. Just got dinner and and everybody's pumped and whatever. Well, the next day we were going to this place called Antigua. This is, it's kind of a tourist place outside of Guatemala city. And it's just this very, um, unique authentic is the word I'm looking for they' Guatemalan tourist place and they have all of these crafts and masks and all this stuff that they make right there and I ended up buying some of this stuff because it was so awesome and bringing it home I don't know what I ever planned on doing with it but we went there had lunch whatever And I'm talking to Fritz I'm like hey okay so my flight is uh, Monday morning and, uh, yeah, so I need to get paid and whatever, just, you know, as we're going through the afternoon, he's like, uh, that's not good news. And I'm like, what? He's like, well, I need to get your money from the bank and to pay you, pay your start money and bonuses and all that. But the banks aren't going to be open by the time you're, you know, you're going to the airport. Uh, so I'm kind of like freaking out because this, it wasn't like you could just PayPal me the money or something like that's not, this is 20 years ago, right? So you're, you need to get cash and you need to get paid and you're dealing with different country. And I don't know if I'm ever going to see this guy again or ever come back here. So I I definitely wanted to leave with my money as anyone would. So I'm like, okay, well, what can we do? You know, I I really don't want to change my flight. I don't want to have to stay Monday just to try to get paid. This is like, he's thinking, thinking he's like, okay, you're not going to like this plan, but it's the only plan if you want to get paid. And I'm like, so I'm going to get my money today. He's like, yes. I'm like, okay, I'm in. I didn't know what that meant saying I'm in, but this is what it meant. We left Antigua right away. Like, okay, we just had lunch. So we, we head back towards Guatemala city. And he basically is laying out the plan to me is like, Hey, you're, we're going to go to this guy's house. Just be cool. No matter what happens, no matter what you see, no matter what is done, said, seen, etc. cetera, just be cool and go with the flow. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean, Fritz? He's like, the only way I can get you the amount of American cash that you need, we have to go to a place where, yeah, I don't know. How, he's, he's a drug dealer, right? And, and I don't remember the way he stated it, but he didn't come out and say that, but it was like, what you would just assume this guy does for a living, right? He's like, yeah, he's, he does some things that you have probably seen and heard about, but we're not going to talk about it. So I'm like asking questions. I'm like, like, we're really going to a drug dealer's like homestead here. Like that's, that's what's happening. I'm going to go get drug money from a guy for a race that I, I won, you know, completely normal and, and honorable. I have to go get drug money now. He's like, I mean, if you want to get paid, this is the only way to get to do it. You didn't do anything wrong, but this is how you can get your money and go home. So I'm just literally like shaking my head as a you know 21 year old kid, like what in the hell? What a, what's the deal? You know, like you don't you don't really know what to do. You don't have a lot of worldly experience, but you know you want to get paid your money so you can go home. So I'm like, all right, screw it. And and he was kind of filling me in. He's like, I grew up with this guy. I've known him my entire life. You know, his chosen profession is not what I would choose, but he is, he's a, he's an okay guy. I've never seen him do anything wrong. It's just his business is—it is It is what you think it is. So just be cool. Like the guy was at the race last night. He's going to be over, you know, over the moon that you're coming to his house. He's a huge fan, right? He was there cheering in the stands. So it's not like he's, he has any ill will towards you. Just be cool and everything will be cool. So I'm like, all right, let's go. So we drive out pretty far in the middle of nowhere and we're driving down this dirt road. And all of a sudden on the left side, I just see this like garage door built into the side of a hill. And I don't know how else to explain it other than exactly that. Like there was like a, just a rise on the side of the road, like a hill. And then there was a door built into that. So we pull up to it and the door opens just like a garage door would. And I'm like, here we go. And we drive through the door and it drops immediately down into a valley and you couldn't see this valley at all from the road. So we drop down and it just opens up into straight out of a movie ranch, like homestead that you would, I mean, any drug documentary, any, you know, any of that stuff that you've ever seen. It's exactly that, right? Boats, cars, trucks, motorcycles, Anything and everything toy wise, you could think of this huge house, like fountains out front, uh, but it, in a very much like, uh, Central American, South American vibe, right. That, that Mediter- I don't want to say Mediterranean, but that style of, of house and everything built around it. So we roll in and I'm just like, you know, silently praying to myself, like, please just let me get out of this. Okay. Right. So we pull in, and everything's cool. There there definitely were a couple of guys standing around with machine guns, um, but I'd kind of gotten used to that as I'd seen machine guns all weekend so far. So we go inside, and um, he literally, like, before we get out of the car, he's like, remember, just be cool. Like nothing here is out of the normal for this. Like these guys are, this is another day for them. And you are a motorcycle racer from America. They're not on edge. They don't have any reason to be skeptical of you or anything like that. This isn't a business transaction. He's just doing me a favor. Cause this is the only way to get you your money. It's like, just act like, act like everything's cool and everything will be cool. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to pretend. So we go in the guy, talk to the guy, And he couldn't have been any nicer, right? He's talking about the race and, you know, he's had a great time and thanks for coming and all this stuff. And you would just would have never gotten the vibe that this dude did anything shady. So we small talk for a few minutes. He's like, all right, I'll be, you know, I'll be right back. Talks to Fritz and I'm assuming they were talking about how much money that the deal was or whatever. So he, he walks, comes back like, I don't know, a minute later, hands me my money, you know, says, you know, obviously this is an not a normal transaction for me, but he appreciates my discretion and whatever. And and thanks for visiting Guatemala and putting on a show and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, all right, sweet. You know, thank you again. Uh, I appreciate everything and appreciate you helping. Cause he really was helping, uh, in this scenario of getting my money and not having to change flights and all that stuff. So we leave and I'm just like driving out of there. I'm like, I cannot believe the place I just was like, that's straight out of every movie you've ever seen. Like Pablo Escobar type stuff. And Fritz was like, yeah, like what I didn't tell you before we went there is cause I didn't want you to be more nervous is that guy's only lived there for six months, six months prior to that. He was on his way home, uh, from out of the country who knows what kind of dealings he was doing. And he got a phone call. Uh, you know, they had whatever sat phones or those old school style cell phones, calls him and says, Hey, don't go home. The federales or whoever are there ready to, to take you down. So he just never went back there. Like literally everything that he had at that old Hacienda, you know, I'm sure it was the same thing, cars and boats and motorcycles and every toy imaginable and all his personal stuff. He left it. He never went back and just completely started over. So all that stuff that he had there, all the cars and boats and bikes, street bikes, motor off-road motorcycles, everything, He had just bought in the last six months. So you just think about the lifestyle of someone like that. You know, he probably just went out and bought all of it cash again and just started over at this new house. And it's just, I mean, crazy. I've watched a lot of documentaries and a lot of TV shows and Narcos and Netflix stuff. That's exactly what it was. Like it was legitimately like that. The only real difference was, is the guy, he didn't seem sketchy. He wasn't like threatening or anything like that he, that's just, he was just a businessman in that narcotics game, I'm guessing. Uh, but he was as cool as could be to me. And I'm very thankful that I got out of there without any, any bad situation. I mean, what if they got raided while I was there, right? I'm probably going down. I'm probably still in a Guatemalan jail or something who knows. Um, but you just think back and like, what the hell were you doing putting yourself in a scenario like that? But yeah, live and learn, I guess. So to follow up on that a year later, um, I think it was right around the time of mini Olympics a year later. So, uh, I get a call from Paul Lindsay again and Paul's like, Hey man, I got, I have really bad news. And I'm like, okay. So the guy Fritz that had brought me down there, he's the Yamaha importer, basically all of, you know, this whole deal, the guy that took me to this drug dealers house and knew the guy, he got murdered. He, in his car out in a field in the middle of nowhere shot. I think he was shot twice, uh, was just dead in his car. They didn't steal his wallet. They didn't take anything out of the car. So it appeared, it was kind of an execution style deal, uh, because they didn't take anything from him. Right. It wasn't a robbery or anything like that. And, you know, I was obviously was like super bummed, you know, Fritz and I had emailed back and forth that year and just kept in touch. And I'd uh, talked about maybe going back down there and yeah, someone I knew had just been murdered straight up. And, um, I started just thinking about why would this have happened? What was Fritz into, you know? And, and we, when we were leaving that, that drug dealers ranch or whatever, I remember asking him like, you know, have you ever contemplated getting into that business? Have you ever, has it ever been tempting? Because you obviously have connections. We just rolled out of, you know, Guatemalan version of Pablo Escobar's ranch. He's like, you know what? Yes, I've been approached by my friends. That guy's even asked me if I wanted to get in the business with him because it's so financially rewarding. But, you know, he always said it it just wasn't worth it. You know, there the risk was so high and you're eventually either gonna be dead or go to jail. And he's like, "I, I don't have to do that. I can have this Yamaha business and I can live a legitimate life and I don't have all the the constant stress and worry and fear that these guys face every day. And he just said, I I, I just never wanted to go down that path. I wanted to live a, live, live a legitimate life and always be able to look myself in the mirror and be proud of what I saw. So, you know, I don't know, I don't know what happened, right? Was, did he decide after I left, did he change his mind? Was he in on some dealings that I never knew about? And he was just kind of, you know, um, selling me up the river as far as all that story. I don't know, but talked to his sister a little bit and she was filling in Paul. I didn't really know her, but she had, she knew Paul Lindsay really well and was filling him in on details. And it definitely sounded like something shady had gone on. Right. I mean, how many legitimate businessmen do you know that just got, get murdered in their car for no reason? So logically it sounds like he got into something bad maybe he owed somebody money you know you never know i mean it, the law down there is such a relative term i mean there was no right wrong there was just nothing that would tell you that you could trust anything as far as repercussions or any of that down there so i don't know man it's definitely the wildest experience i've ever had and then you know you think you get out of there and everything's good and what a story to tell and then a year later the guy that brings you down there gets murdered right? So that all, that's all happening. You know, Fritz gets murdered in 2002 to put a, just the I I don't even want to say the cherry on this whole story because this is so tragic. It's not the right terminology at all, but let's fast forward to like 2008, right? And I had not gone back down there. I just, after Fritz got murdered, I kind of swore off Guatemala entirely. Like that's, I'm out on, I'm out on that deal. Who knows who that person knew and what I could be a part of, any of that. So 2008, they're still racing down there. And a kid from, I, I don't know if he was born. I think he was born in Florida, but he had ties to to that area, Costa Rica, Guatemala. Maybe he was from Costa Rica originally. I don't know. I should know that. But he was, a, he was an up-and-coming amateur racer. And he went to uh, a race down there same thing I did right and he was a good racer I think he won but he they were leaving the race and they were driving back to Costa Rica and I guess in this spirit of racing these these drug dealers had really gotten enthusiastic and they were paying pretty big bucks to these guys to come down and not not really so much when I was down there but they were what was happening is these guys were gambling on the race and they were paying riders to come down as you know basically like they were their race horses and then they were gambling on the race. Well, Oscar had been brought down there. and I don't think to, he knew this, but he, his money and his, all of his start money and expenses, everything had been paid for by this drug dealer. And so he wins, right? Well, supposedly he was going to be driving back with this drug dealer guy to Costa Rica, but that wasn't, that didn't happen. Right. So I don't don't even think Oscar knew this guy, this drug dealer guy, but the the other drug dealer that had been gambling against him thought that's what the deal was. So they planned to hit on this drug dealer, this rival drug dealer. So as they're driving, they roll up next to them in a van with machine guns and just open fire on this car that Oscar Diaz is in and kill everybody. They kill everybody in the car thinking that they're going to kill this rival drug dealer with him. Well, the rival drug dealer wasn't even with them. All they did was kill... The motorcycle people and Oscar Diaz inside the car. I mean, this is like stuff that you would see on like a movie, right? This this doesn't even seem real, but that's what happened. Like, legitimately, I talked to people down there. They they drug dealer thought he had this guy cornered. He thought he knew where it'd be at a certain time, and he put a hit on him. And yeah, the guy wasn't even there. He just killed a bunch of innocent motorcycle people. So that was. (laughs) You think I'm sworn off Guatemala? Then you know. Then I have. I'm never going back there now. Just unreal. The things that you watch on these shows and, you know, cocaine cowboys or whatever. And, and that stuff, like, I'm not going to say I lived through it cause I wasn't even there, but I, I was certainly around that dynamic to, to be able to put myself back there. And you just are like, what the hell, man? Like, how does that even happen? how did these people live their daily lives? Like, Oh yeah, we got this guy just go kill everybody in the car and hopefully we'll get the right guy. You know, that, that's literally what they did is everybody else is just, you know, a a casualty of war and we're going to hopefully kill the guy we're after. It's just, just crazy thinking back on it now. So it's been a while. I don't even know if these guys are still racing down there anymore, but, uh, just wild, crazy times that I'm thankful I got away from have never been to Guatemala since I did race a race in Guadalajara, uh, which I'll, I will cover at another time in 2010. That was a pretty awesome story too. Um, but I, I have never been to Guatemala since, and I, I don't think I have any interest in going back to, to Guatemala. So wild story, crazy times. I mean, this, the tragic thing is some really innocent, great people got murdered in the process. Uh, I don't even know who I am right now. Like I'm, <laughs> talking about people getting murdered and drug deals. And yeah, it's just a wild time to think back that I lived through. So enough on that. Um, I'll get into the the Guadalajara story next week, but I do want to do some of these emails. Uh, I really appreciate again, these, I am overwhelmed by the support and feedback I've gotten and the amount of emails and I I can't answer everyone, but I tried to pick a handful here. um, So the first one, 208 Brando asks, what's the coolest, best slash unobtainium part you ever got to use? So I would say that uh, some of the Suzuki stuff that Chad Reed had from his 09 season, uh, he let me borrow, let's say air quotes around borrow. Um, So think about he left in 09, he went to Monster Energy Kawasaki for the 2010 season, well, some of those parts, they just disappear, right? That happens all the time. Stuff, whether it's on purpose or not, doesn't get sent back. And uh, so, yeah, there was this uh, ECU, which if you've ever followed the James Stewart story, you know that was one of the big reasons why he didn't come back was getting a works ECU as a part of the deal. But I had a works ECU from Chad's 2009 RMZ450. And I got on a Suzuki that fall, right? So it kind of timed up perfectly where Chad had a bunch of Suzuki parts and I was getting on a Suzuki. So I remember originally I got a, an ECU, uh, magnesium hubs, like the full race wheels that he had. I got a linkage that was a works linkage that didn't exist. That, that ratio didn't exist anywhere else. I got a bunch of titanium parts, like a titanium, uh, pivot, a bunch of things that I couldn't get anywhere else, so I immediately started winding that stuff for my race bike, and I used the ignition uh, overseas that fall. It was just it revved so much higher than anything I could get, and, and this was kind of before the the ECU you know revolution with GED and Vortex and all these guys really programmable. Now you didn't really have that option, so being able to just put that on my bike really opened that Suzuki that engine up. It was a pretty huge advantage over, I felt like anybody else that I was racing against, especially like these races overseas. And then in the 2010 supercross season, I was using those wheels. I was using a lot of stuff. And I remember Ray Tetherton from Suzuki coming over at, I want to say St. Louis. And uh, I had been running these parts for a f- several weeks. And he's just like, uh, why are you using that stuff? And I'm like, what do you mean? This stuff's awesome. Like I have a works linkage on my bike. I have factory wheels. I have all this stuff that he knows that I don't, shouldn't have access to. And he's like, where'd you get that stuff? And I'm like, uh, I found it in a garbage can in Germany, basically just saying like, I got it from the Suzuki Germany people. And uh, he's like, uh, no, you didn't. And I'm like, you can't prove I didn't. And he knew uh, he knew he couldn't prove it because it, the wheels weren't stamped. There was no way to track them to say they were Chad's or anything. So he's like, listen, I don't care. Like you're one of, I think three Suzuki's in the 450 main events right now. So I, I'm happy to help you. But there are things that if the Japanese are looking at your bike, they're going to be pissed, right? Because you're using parts that you weren't, but they didn't budget this for you. That the wheels were the most glaring because they were magnesium hubs and they're gold rims that they had specifically for their team. So I wanted those wheels badly because they were so light, but, but I I got it. I understood. He's like, listen, I don't care. Keep the ECU, keep the linkage, keep the things that no one can see because I do want to help you, but you've got to give me those wheels back because that's going to be a big problem if the Japanese see that. So I'm like, all right, you know, whatever compromise. So I gave him those parts back, but I ran that ignition for another year, I think past that and, uh, ran the linkage. And I remember my mechanic was Dan Truman at the time, which many of you are probably familiar with. And he was so pissed at me because I kept making him rebuild that linkage over and over and over and put new bearings in and do all this stuff because the the linkage was so much better than the stock one and anything I could get my hands on. And then the ignition started, all the the fittings and everything started getting really worn out. And he was like complaining about still having to use it, but it was such an advantage. It really upped my the the level of my equipment right off the bat. So uh long-winded answer there, but definitely the the factory stuff off of that 09 Suzuki, which that bike was badass. Um that would have been the coolest stuff I ever had, even if I wasn't supposed to have it. So Garvey asks, do you think that Cooper Webb and others had the coronavirus at the beginning of the year? And he's referencing Zach Osborne. So, if you go back and remember Anaheim 1, uh, Zach Osborne and Cooper Webb had air quotes around the flu, right? And Zach was so bummed because he had taken every precaution in the world to try not to get sick leading up to the beginning of the season. You know, they stopped working out at the gym, a public gym, they worked out of the private gym, and they weren't, they were literally doing everything and going above and beyond trying to stay healthy at that critical time leading up to the season. And they both got sick. They both got the flu. So I talked to Zach a little bit about this, and he's pretty certain that that's what they had. He read through symptoms and did his own research and talking to some medical professionals that he knows, and and they're pretty sure that's what they had. Remember how deathly ill it seemed Cooper Webb was at St. Louis? And they struggled with it for weeks and weeks. I mean, like, I remember, like, four or five weeks later, talking to Zach and he was still had like that dry cough. That is one of the symptoms of uh coronavirus. So pretty sure that those guys had it in January, which is crazy to think back on. You know, we didn't even know really what coronavirus was back then. So yeah, to answer your question, I do believe that. I don't have any proof, but they believe it and uh I believe it as well just just kind of logically working through the the scenario. Michael asks uh, could you talk a little bit about logistics of gear on race day? Uh, an example, when Zach Osborne finishes a race, who's responsible for his boots? Who's responsible for his helmet? Uh, who does who cleans all that stuff? Where do they go? Um, same question for goggles and all his gear. So a little bit of a different dynamic as you work through the different parts and pieces there. So boots, Alpine Stars, and Garnet have their own guys there. So Zach wears Garnet. So I'm not a hundred percent sure on that scenario, but I know for Alpine stars, they have a technician that he literally goes around, takes riders boots from the truck and cleans them, uh, during the day after the race. So every time those guys go out on the track, their boots are clean. Um, that's literally his job is to clean boots all day long. And obviously they pressure wash them at each race truck as well. Uh, but they, long story short, they do have a technician that is, that's his responsibility is to make sure their boots are dialed. Uh, as far as helmet and goggles, that stuff, there is a goggle guy for most big brands that goes to every, uh, truck. And what he'll do is he'll drop off, let's say eight pair of goggles for the day. And so those guys, every time they go out on the track, no matter what it is, practice, race, main event, whatever, they always have brand new goggles and they always have a spare set. Um, so that's usually kind of a one and done, uh, like John Knowles for Scott goggles He would go in, drop off the goggles, and make sure they're all dialed. He'd probably check in a couple times a day, maybe replace some as they're being used, and just make sure they don't disappear. Because one difference is, like, these guys, they sweat so much that a lot of times they'll use one-off foam, like a medical-grade foam on the race goggles, just to help with sweat absorption. And you can't really build that on production goggles because the price would be astronomical. Um, But for these you know, top level supercross guys and outdoor and outdoors as well. They get one off foam in a lot of cases. So they try to be careful with where those goggles end up. Uh, so sometimes he'll come around and collect them midday, uh, for the helmet wise, before we get too far past that subject, uh, our guy, uh, fly racing, Dalton Braun or Max Steffens would go around and clean helmets throughout the day. I have done that as well, Uh, but we just want to make sure that the product looks brand new every time they hit the racetrack. So TBS24 or 427 asks, I suspect coronavirus could hurt our company, our economy for at least a few months. Yeah, I'd say that's a safe bet. Um, Do you think that it will heavily impact race attendance for the rest of the year once we're allowed to go racing again? You know what? I'm torn on that because it certainly is going to hurt our economy. And yes, some people I think are going to be like, you know what? We don't have the money. I've been laid off. You know, it's first first things first. We got to pay, pay our rent, pay for food, um, the bare essentials that we need to take care of my family. But I I do think when racing gets back up and going, that people are going to be so pumped and so enthusiastic about going. I, I don't know where that goes. I think if it's financially possible, people that maybe wouldn't have gone before somebody that maybe was on a Chris Kiefer daytime program, They're going to want to go now because they're going to want to be around that sport and, and experience all the things that we weren't able to do. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't pretend to know the answer. I know for me, I'm going to be more willing to engage in things that maybe otherwise I would just blow off and be like, yeah, I'm just going to, you know, um, sit inside my house and do nothing. I think I'm going to be more willing to go out and go meet friends for dinner and go do all these things, go to a concert because, all of us have been quarantined and stuck inside and sheltering in place for so long. We're all going to miss it more than we ever have. So that's, that's how I see it. Yes, there will be people that financially just can't afford to go. I get it. But I think maybe people that can afford to go maybe will prioritize this more than they would have prior. So maybe it offsets. Um, But I just think that people are going to be dying to get outside and experience things that they've been disallowed to do. So Good question. Uh, I think it's yet to be seen. I, I think you'll, you'll see it both sides of the coin on that. Marcos, uh, asked a pretty deep question here. So he says, do you ever struggle with white life after your racing career? I know you had some success, but do you ever feel like you missed out on some uh, possible results or, or fell short? More importantly, if that's the case, did, did you feel like it haunted you or caused depression or struggles post racing? So he also mentions that he was a sponsored snowboarder in the early 2000s, and he had some success, but he he didn't take it seriously and regretted that for years and years. Uh, he has buddies that are still in the sport and they accomplished their dreams and you know they're they're making it and where he maybe could have, but he wasted opportunities and uh, he's always regretted it. So he has a six year old daughter now and he loves racing and dirt bikes above all else but he just wondered if anybody else has ever shared that that feeling of not accomplishing your goals and maybe leaving something on the table so this is something I've talked about on a few shows I've talked about it with Steve quite a bit both on his shows and privately and um, you know for me I never really had that feeling because I don't think I had a lot of talent naturally you know I wasn't some phenom as a kid. Most of what I accomplished came out of hard work and just perseverance. And if you talk, if you listen to um, the Paul Curry podcast that Steve Mathis did, I think he nailed it for me when he was, he was asked about me directly because Paul and I were really close. He basically said that I maximized what I was given to work with. And I think that's true. I think I made the most of the talent level I had and the opportunities I was given because I didn't have the ability to go win. I was never going to beat Ricky Carmichael and and these guys. You know, I wasn't going to beat Jeremy McGrath. I, it just wasn't going to happen for me. Those guys were simply too talented to overcome. But I was able to get myself good enough and work hard enough to go win overseas. I was able to get top tens and even a top five in the USA. And if you had told me when I was a kid that that was going to happen for me, I would have never believed you. There's just, that didn't seem possible because I wasn't good enough. I wasn't talented enough. But I was able to overcome it just with hard work and discipline and, and learning. You know, I was very, very fortunate to get to ride with guys like Tim Ferry and Chad Reed and Sebastian Tortelli and even like Davey Millsaps and those guys um, I would go up and ride with. Ricky Carmichael, I practiced with a ton right? Uh, Ryan Poto, I went and rode with a ton in the 2010 season. So I was around all these guys that I was able to learn from and mold my program to kind of take my deficiencies and build a plan for how to get better. And I, I was able to just mold my own experiences to what they were doing. And yeah, I couldn't do wh- exactly what they were doing, but, but I was able to apply it to my own strengths and weaknesses and make myself better. So I never really faced that feeling of falling short or leaving stuff on the table because I, I felt like I really maximized what I could do. And yeah, did I want to go win a Supercross championship? Of course I did. But I also knew that it wasn't realistic for me. And I needed to have realistic goals. I needed to, to have things that if I really worked hard for were possible. Because if, I, if my goal was to go win Anaheim 1, I was always going to fall short of that. I, and I knew that I was always a believer that if you set realistic goals, something that's achievable, but maybe, maybe lofty, right? I I do believe in that, you know, Chad Reed has always written and wrote on social media to dream big. I, you know, his, his ceiling was so high, like, you know, there was no goal too big for him, but I do believe setting lofty goals was important, and I had goals of being a top ten week in and week out guy, and and trying to battle for top fives. And I, I didn't get there, but I did at times, and that's where I was trying to get to, is be that guy that was there week in and week out. But you know, when I retired at the end of 2012, as far as American racing anyway, I didn't really want to do it anymore, and I, I felt like I would left everything out there. You know, I just turned 33. And I didn't feel like there was much left to accomplish. You know, I, I just was like, you know what, this has been a really good run. I'm healthy. I'm able to get out of this. And honestly, the sport wasn't very healthy at that point as financially. So it wasn't like I was leaving this big, um, financial windfall on the table that that was kind of out at that point. This, the sport was barely hanging in there in 2012, so it was just the right time for me. And, and I look back and I'm like, you know what? I was so fortunate because there were a lot of guys that were probably much more talented than me, or at least at the same level I was at that weren't able to keep going for as long as I did. They weren't able to make the money at times that I did, and they weren't able to go travel the world and do these things. So I always left, and, and I, as I sit here today in April of 2020, I feel very fortunate. I don't feel like I left anything out there. I look back and I I kind of wonder how the hell I ever got to that point because it just seems so unlikely and my talent and my ability just didn't seem to line up with the things that I accomplished. I don't know how the hell I ever won Montreal Supercross. I don't know how I won all those races all over Europe. I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I mean, I worked my ass off, so I guess that's really where the answer lies, but I look back at the guys I was beating and they were, they were really good. Like I watched, uh, for example, I watched Montreal 2006. It was on uh, Instagram TV the other day and I did not win dusty Clat one. I got second, but if you go back and you watch that race and see all the guys that were in it, there were some really talented guys in it. I mean, super good. Like I don't, I mean, I, at the time I was like, yeah, okay. I'm gonna, I got second. That's where I deserve to be. But as I looked up and down the lineup but the guys who are battling in like seven, 8, 9, 10, 12. I'm like, man, those guys were, they were legit. And I was way in front of them. Right. And, um, so those are the things I'm thankful for is it, it just could have gone so much worse for me in my career. Um, even, you know, you look back and I'm sure if Chad Reed had to look at my career to be like, damn dude, you didn't do all that good. Right. But for me living through it, I feel like I maximized what I had to work with. So good question. Um, But for me, I just never really had that experience of depression or feeling like I left anything out there. Um, I I left the Lake Elsinore National in 2012, so relieved that I was done. And I I don't think many people get to experience that feeling. There are just so many people that long for a comeback or a, a chance to go, you know, make turn some sort of wrong into a right. That just wasn't the deal for me. So anyway, uh, last but not least, Zach Cantrell, you are the Formula Helmet winner, and uh, you're, there were a bunch of questions submitted by Zach, and some of the things, you know personally, I, I won't get into um, as far as my overall reasons for, for picking Zach to, to win this Formula Helmet, uh, but his, his question that I'm going to directly answer is is what is the best that has happened? What is the best thing that's happened in your life that you can attribute to your sport or career? And I'll be honest, this question specifically wasn't the reason I chose him to win. There are some other things again, that, uh, that made me choose him overall over several questions that he posted. But I think to answer the question, the best thing and the most attributable thing was having two parents that supported me no matter what. Um, I think that's a pretty common theme throughout the sport, but I can only speak to my specific situation. And my parents were willing to sacrifice whatever to make sure that I had what I needed and I could go racing and bigger than racing, just had the things I needed in life, right? And, and racing is such a small part of, uh, most family dynamics, but my dad worked a million hours a day to allow us to go racing. You know, my mom worked at the races every single weekend on top of working, you know, all day long, every day. So I could have, so I could be able to race to pay for my entry fees. And my dad could have decent motorcycles for me to ride. And, uh, I don't know that every set of parents out there is willing to do that. Um, I was, I'm very thankful that mine were. And, uh, you know, with age comes a lot of perspective. And when you're younger, you don't always understand the sacrifices that are, that are made. You, you don't have a, a wide view of the world around you. You know, you're, you have tunnel vision of your situation. You don't understand economics and you don't understand any of the things like you don't understand a mortgage payment or insurance or you know, jobs, people getting laid off, the the constant stress of having bills to pay. You don't get any of that when you're a kid, but as you get older and you look back on the things that, and the sacrifices and compromises that your parents made to make sure you had the best that they could possibly provide for you and they didn't ever cut corners for you. Um, so yeah, to the short answer is the best thing that I had happen to me was the parents that I was you know, given by the grace of God. So, um, I, you know, literally say thanks to God many times. I've done it. I I don't know. I hundreds of times, I'm so thankful that I had the parents that I did because I've seen some pretty crappy parents out there and that's just all luck of the draw, right? You you don't have any choice in that when you're born as to how your parents are going to raise you or the, the opportunities that they're going to afford you. Uh, but I was very fortunate with my situation. So, uh, yeah, that, that's the luckiest I got was being born into the family. I was, um, the last one, um, and (laughs) I don't even, I didn't even write back, write down who asked this, but, um, this is the story I'm going to tell about tell for next weekend was the best after party story I ever have. And it's going to be Vegas, 2008 and it was the night Chad Reed won his championship, J-Law won his championship, and I can't remember who won the other coast, but it was uh, that was basically all I need to know is Chad Reed championship night and J-Law championship night. So that's the story we'll get into next week. Maybe I'll add one to it as well. But again, uh, thank you to all the sponsors, uh, Pirelli, uh, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, Premier Vapor Blasting, All Oils, and Fly Racing. Check out all the promos they have going on. Listen, it's it's going to be very difficult for all small business right now. So we all need to do our part. That means everybody, right? If you have a an interest in this sport, staying healthy and continuing, do what you can. I know everyone's worried about their finances right now. But if you're gonna buy something, you know, why not choose the the businesses that are trying to keep this sport afloat and are are reinvesting and you know, bigger than that, just spend your money where your heart is. Um so yeah, please if nothing else go on their these Instagrams and their websites and and learn about their products so when things do make sense for you to spend money, you're ready. Um that doesn't cost any money to do is to to learn about these products. So again, thank you very much. It's April 5th, 2020 and we're in the midst of this COVID quarantine and uh hopefully the world heals. Hopefully, you know, I do have some friends that have this virus. Hopefully they they heal sooner than later. Hopefully our, our businesses can all get back to normal. Um, I'm actually going to go into the office a little bit this week, uh, for some essential business, but yeah, it's affecting everybody's day in life. You know, their, their normal life has been completely flipped upside down. So no different for me than for you. I'm, I'm coping with it and every day is an adventure. So again, be safe. Thanks for listening. And, uh, we'll see you soon.